Please welcome. Please welcome. Welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast, a podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable, learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now here's your host, Ed Mysogland. Today I had the opportunity to, to interview a hero, one of the guys I look up to. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big value guy. I've been doing it for Know, 30 plus years as far as working on sell side value, whether it's whether it's the deal work that we do or just assigning value to the deals that we're taking to market. And one of the guys that has always to me been kind of leading edge of helping business owners understand value is John Warillo. And you may not know the name John Warillo, but you probably know the name Built to Sell. And that is who we interviewed today or who I interviewed today. And John, you know, he's I've served on his board. I've I've helped, you know, I've I've helped in in different capacities over the years um in in what they do and I totally believe in their mission. And the funny thing is that you know, when I think of value, you know, you got your Shannon Pratt's, your Grabowski's, your Mercer's. There's so many different people that have contributed to value that, you know, in the appraisal community. But the the disconnect is I think John has helped so many business owners or advisors like me help business owners understand the drivers of what creates value in their business. And so yeah, total highlight. This is episode 100 for me. One of the one of the gifts that John gave me was to be my 100th episode. And it was great. It was everything that I had hoped for and I I am 100% certain you are going to love this episode. So, enjoy my episode with John Warillo of the Value Builder System, author of Built to Sell. Well, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Good to be with you. It's awesome. It it is one of my highlights. So I I appreciate you being here. And and I in my introduction, you know, I probably didn't do it justice. So I say that every time, but and I and I I really believe that. But I guess I wanted to I guess ask you right out of the gate to talk a little bit about value builder and built to sell and that whole system that you've created. Yeah, well, you know, we were on a mission to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. We think that right now they're bringing a knife to a gunfight, not knowing sort of the value of their company, how they can improve it. So, I mean, the most prominent thing we do is something called the value builder questionnaire, which scores owners on these eight factors that impact their value. We give them a score on each and then show them uh, through folks like you how to improve the, the score on each of those drivers. So that's really where a lot of owners start. Uh, their journey is to get an assessment. You know, some folks say, "Well, why would I want an assessment? I don't want to sell." And what I what I usually say is, you know, have you ever gone into a gym and the trainer says, "Okay, let's let's do an assessment, right? But body fat percentage, and you know, how many push ups you could do, and 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 on, at the time, it's it's annoying, but." Over time, you come to appreciate it, right? Because you can see what right. your weight was when you started, how many push-ups you could do then and now. And so I say to people, look, you don't have to want to sell your company to know, A, what the value of it is today, what it could be. And and so you can track your journey. And, uh, and so that's yeah. kind of what we do. Well, I... <sighs> In my profession, I, I've I've known you, Ed, known of you, and I've known you for a long time. And... And I've, you know, I've never known your origin story, like hmm. how, how this whole thing came about, because, you know, I'm, as I, as I was doing research, I mean, it, there's a, there's a gap that it seems that you were, you were, you were in your lab creating this whole thing. And I'm just curious to know, you know, how did this come? Because it, it, I don't know. Were you, were you an entrepreneur? What? What? Tell me about how you got to this point. Yeah, I've, I've been involved in a couple of businesses, mostly service companies. One one was a quantitative market research business, and it was a reasonably successful business. I think we got to about six million in revenue. We had a very unique niche, and that we helped big companies understand the SMB segment. So our okay. clients were like Microsoft and Bank of America, those guys. 
And it was a very profitable business. We, typical month, we do 20 to 30% EBITDA margins on, so wow. on 6 million. It was, it was a good business. And I went to a guy named Perignelli, M&A guy like you, Ed, in Toronto. And I said, you know, Ed, what do you, or Perry, what do you think it's worth? And I was kind of rubbing my hands together waiting for the number because, <laughs> you know, I'd want in there thinking, you know, Microsoft, Bank of America, we're going to get paid handsomely for this company. And, you know, and, and, and Perry said, well, you know, it depends on the answer to a couple of questions, what it's worth. And I said, shoot. And he said, well, who does the research? And I said, well, I'm involved in some of it because it's these giant corporations. I've got to keep my hand on the pulse of the research. So I'm involved in that. Okay. Well, who does the selling? I'm like, it's, it's Microsoft. I've, I've got to get on a plane and go to Redmond if I'm going to convince Microsoft to use our company. So I'm involved in the selling. He said, okay, great. So let me get this straight. You're in a research business. Uh, you're doing the research and you're doing the selling. Is that, is that right, John? I'm, and I'm kind of <laughs> seeing the writing on the wall at this point. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he says, John, I, I can't sell your company. There's nothing here to sell. It's worthless. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure you've had to deliver that oh. message a few times. Grim, Grim Reaper of business valuation is yeah, my Yeah, it's title. brutal, right? It's yeah. brutal. And, but that really kicked off for me a journey uh, where we really transformed that business. I turned it into a subscription company. I got out of doing the selling, hired some you know, a leadership team. And ultimately, it was acquired by a public company. You know them as Gartner yeah. Group, New York Stock Exchange listed company. So it sort of had a happy ending. But not knowing that stuff, thinking my business would be valued solely on my EBITDA and my client list, uh, which is what I sort of took as gospel for probably a decade. Yeah. I, I, I kind of felt, I felt passionately about disproving that or sort of educating folks that, about the stuff I didn't know. And that's what triggered me to write Built to Sell and, and then Built to Sell in a sort of weird way kind of evolved into the value builder system. So that's sort right. of the the short version of the story. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? The the funny thing is I've always looked at value builder as serving the underserved. I mean, mm. you were talking to an investment bank and that, that person clearly had an understanding of, of what drives value and to, to bring it kicking and screaming into small business land. That's a that's a big win. And, and and like I said, I never I you know, I knew I knew there was a business in there. I just didn't know that it was it was your business. But now I, I could totally see with all the data that you guys do, coupled with you know the mechanics of selling, I t I now see I, I now see how, how it was put together. Now yeah. rewinding even further, so was your family in entrepreneurship or is this were you the, the black sheep and said, you know, I'm gonna go be <sighs> I want to start a business. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I'm 52, so this goes back a ways. But my, my, I, my family immigrated to Canada, where I live in Toronto, from okay. England. And my, my dad, I was five when we moved here. And my dad came here with no job, nowhere to live. And he had two weeks to kind of get both of those sorted out between, uh, between okay. the time we left England and the time that uh, – yeah, uh, we came over on a ship, and he flew over, and we had to get all that stuff sorted out. So he was the original entrepreneur in our family, although oh, he did. didn't actually start a business. Entrepreneurial, yeah. I mean, he took a chance and a risk, sure. and it paid off. He was in corporate in the corporate world, but uh, but yeah, no, I I I, uh, I guess it, in a funny way, he he ran a magazine company in Canada as a manager, not an owner, but a manager, yeah. and. Um, yeah, he he was involved in a magazine similar to Inc. Magazine sure. in the United States. It was called Profit, and so I I sort of got to know entrepreneurship sort of through him and and some of the uh, the magazines that they published. So that was sort of my introduction to it. Yeah, well, coupled with look, and if you look at it, it, it seems as though his fingerprints are are built on, or you know, are, you can see them, uh, you know, on some of of your authorship. You I know? guess probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. One of the things, you know, and I guess I imagine it's probably five years ago when, when you rolled out that there are three different types of buyers that, that your research shows, mountain climbers, freedom fighters, and craftsmen. Um, so my first question is, can you describe each? Sure. But then, I, yeah, let's, let's start there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it actually came out of research we did when uh, I was in my former company. We worked uh, again with very large enterprise organizations, 
And they paid us a lot of money uh, to understand and help them market to SMBs. And what we did was a piece of qualitative research. And qualitative research is where you really try to get underneath people's motivations. Like, why do people do what they do? And what we discovered was that you can categorize entrepreneurs into these three buckets based on their primal motivation. Like, what gets them up at night? What is their their kind of knee-jerk motivation? Not what they're uh, sort of socialized to do, but like in their sort of DNA, what is motivating them? And we discovered that there are these this group called mountain climbers, which is which are people that are motivated to achieve. Like their their primary motivation is achievement, is climbing mountains. They're literally climbing mountains in their mind. They get to the top and they, they don't spend much time enjoying the scenery. They look around and, and try to find the next highest mountain to go climb. They're just, that's just what turns them on, right? So that's in an entrepreneurial way. Like someone like an Elon Musk would be like the, the quintessential mountain climber, right? right. Like on steroids. He, you know, he never settles and is always looking to take on huge challenges. The second group of folks is what we call freedom fighters, and their primal motivation is independence. And so they are not trying to create the next SpaceX, the next Tesla, uh, the next Apple. They are trying to create a business that can thrive without them. They love to be in control. You've heard entrepreneurs as control freaks. That's an old <laughs> expression that I'm sure is almost cliche. Freedom fighters are the control freaks, right? And you can see that on their cap table. They're very hesitant to share equity because for freedom fighters, you know, having investors, a board of directors, an angel, all of that would be uh, kind of winnowing away or chipping away at their independence. And for them, independence is their, is their most important value. And so they would rather have a smaller company and control 100% of it than a very large company where they're a minority shareholder in it. And so that's the freedom fighter group. And then the craftsperson group is the third, in fact, arguably the largest of the three groups and they're yeah. motivated by mastery. And we all know these, these entrepreneurs, right? That the person who uh, maybe comes and installs your alarm or comes and installs your backyard deck and, and they're, they love what they do. They take mm -hmm. tremendous pride in what they do, but they're not actually entrepreneurs in the truest sense of the word. They don't, they don't want to build a company. They want to do their work. And so they typically are self-employed. They very rarely hire employees. They're the most risk averse of the three. As a result, they don't, they, they see employees as risk. And so they don't yeah. hire them. So these are the, the freelance copywriters, the massage therapists, the painters, the you know, deck installers yeah. who work independently. And those are the three uh, motivations you can broadly categorize yeah. business owners in. So as you're looking at, at them and, and I, I know the, and, and the, the question, the backdrop of the question is whether or not are we making more, are we making more mountain climbers today as a result of certainly the work that you do and the information that's available? Because you can arguably the, the mountain climbers, tend to be the most valuable. And I'm just curious whether or not, you know, are you seeing that trend? And I, I teach it at uh, one of the local universities here. And one of the things, I mean, the kids are just smarter. You, you have all this, you know, we're seeing more uh, colleges aligning with the entrepreneurs. And there's, to me, I think they're fast tracking into the mountain climber world. So what, what are you guys seeing? Yeah, and it's an interesting point. I think when you know there's a, there's an old sort of traditional model, very patriarchal model, where you know you worked for a company for 30, 40 years, you got the gold watch, and you retired. In fact, my father would have probably fallen into that category. He's seventy nine, eight, nine years old, so he's the very eldest of the baby boom generation, and he, you know, for him. You got a job and you worked in a company and then, you know, you retired and that was, that was the, the kind of model. And so those businesses, those owners who think like him, and call them baby boomers, if you want to use that old yeah. expression, I think do tend to think of their uh, entrepreneurial endeavors as, as a much more of a legacy as one company that at some point in the future, they will sell and retire. They're more likely to use retirement and selling a business as synonyms. Like they don't yeah. draw the distinction between the two. Whereas 
younger entrepreneurs, uh, I, I believe, are much more likely to see the distinction between the two. They, they are much more likely to have multiple businesses in their careers, and they are much yeah. more likely to build to sell effectively, not necessarily have this kind of legacy business that they're intending to pass down to their eldest son, which is right. believe it or not what we used to do a hundred years ago, right? Right. right um, yeah. That all obviously probably for good reason is all gone. And so people are kind of getting into businesses and, and with a view to selling them. Now, the other thing you can't, I think, get away from it is just that technology um, has, has, has really added jet fuel onto this trend because of course, right. Technology businesses tend to be easier to sell. They're, they're, they're much easier than a service business where the assets obviously go up and down the elevator every night. And so as technology business, in particular SaaS apps and SaaS companies and so forth, have become more commonplace, um, it's just increased the volume of deal flow in, in that sort of space. And so, yeah, I would tend to agree with you in your qualitative. We haven't done the, the quantitative analysis, but qualitatively, I, I tend to agree with you, Ed, that that yeah. mountain climbers, uh, the proportion of mountain climbers is growing. Well, I th I think they're 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 they're, you know, before I I I would say there's distinction between each of them, and I think the the freedom fighters and the mountain climbers are starting to blur. That you know what, I can have the freedom but I can also have a, just a great business that'll operate without me. Yeah. You know? I presented them today as being like very distinct. Like you're either a mountain climber or you're, or you're a freedom fighter. And that, and that's a mistake there. They are shades of gray. There are you know prevalences and there are tendencies, but they're not like black and white. One thing that you can look for, and I alluded to it earlier is, is the cap table because you will find that freedom fighters are very reluctant to bring external investors mm. into the into their business because yeah. again, for them, that's just somebody looking over their shoulder, someone undermining their authority, someone second guessing their work. That's just all they're allergic to that, right? So, so, so that's the one. That is one area where you can see some fairly stark yeah. differences between the two. Well, I'll tell you one of the, and, and I just, I just thought of this and, and, and we see in the United States there that what the SBA is doing, I mean, where you can contribute five or 10% into a deal and, and the, the balance is, is funded. You don't need a cap table. I think in, in, you know, the baby boomers and, you know, go back a generation that you didn't have that luxury. And so I think that's what, what's prompting me to say, yeah, I, I, I'm, I think that today's buyer is fast forwarding through, you know, some of the, the freedom fighter benefit and moving closer to, or moving faster into the, into the, um, into the mountain climbers. I mean, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but yeah, no, I think that's true. And and of course, there's an entire legion of new owners who are buying companies, and 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 this is again fueled by the SBA, and also, uh, you know, Harvard and Cornell have entire courses dedicated to how to buy a small business, and so you know. A lot of people have seen the money private equity groups have made. Yep. They kind of get underneath the business wall and say, okay, well, a bit of debt and a little bit of equity, I can, you know, maybe a little bit of a uh, vendor take back and, and, and I can probably um, buy a company for a fairly small amount of capital. Yep. And that model is being taught at many universities around the country. And so you have these young people two, three years out of business school, trying to buy companies, uh, which is something never happened. Do you think that's good or years. bad? Oh man, that's a, that's, yeah, probably, that's a loaded question. Yeah. I, no, I, I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> go ahead. I'll, you, you want, you want to go first or you want me to? Well, I mean, I, look, I, I get those calls all the time about value builder, right? So people call up and say, Hey, you got this technology companies I, you know, I'd like to buy your business and partner with you. And we'd like to extend your legacy. And, and I look at their LinkedIn profile and they're like two years out of business school. And, and, you know, they were working at home Depot as a greeter like a year ago. And it, it's not a good look. And I, so I, I look, I, I think there are, you know, for, for folks who get, who, who, um, 
who apply this and are successfully able to buy businesses, it's it's a very good way to make money. I, like, but oh no, hundred percent. That but, the quickest way to wealth is 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 this path. I mean, zero yeah. question about that. But I'll tell you that I I I'm with you. Where it, it is. And not, and I don't, I don't want to say manipulative because that's not what it is. It's just you don't know what you don't know, and you know, you, you coming to the table as a, you know, a twenty-four-year-old, you know, it's it's really hard for it's harder than it looks. <laughs> yeah, for someone to go, oh, you know what? <laughs> I think I'm going to entrust. Hey, I'm going to entrust. Uh, you know, certainly there's going to be some sort of debt, you know, some seller note. Yeah, I'm going to entrust that to you. It just doesn't, it doesn't resonate, but, but you're right. I mean, and, and like I said, I, I teach over at the, the university and, and we've got a class called venture planning and that's exactly what they're doing. They're out looking for deals and, and some of them have found it. Um, yeah, but boy, oh boy, I, yeah, as a deal guy, it's like, it, it takes a real special person to get that one across the finish line. Yeah, yeah, and and most of the most of the debt is personally guaranteed. But if you're 24 and have no assets, who cares? Yeah, right? I like, it's, say, that's a- it's fine. When you're 44 and have a house and a, you know, like a bunch of stuff, it's it's probably not the best right. business model to follow because again, these these, these this debt is personally guaranteed. Uh, so I, you know, it's for the. <laughs> so kids who can make it work, I think it's a great way to build some wealth. Uh, but for owners who are looking yeah. to sell, I'm not sure it's the best way to exit. Well, and, and people are going to hear this, and and I I can't believe you know I just said that, and because I I've said you know your first loss is your least loss. If you want to risk it, now's the time to go all in. And yeah, I I don't know whether I don't know whether that's good advice or not. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think generally, Ed, like entrepreneurship is building a successful company has to be one of the most difficult things there is to do. And I think one of the things, I mean, we started this conversation going back to advising Microsoft and Apple and Bank of America on on marketing small business owners. And what I used to try to drill into their heads is – you call them small business owners, right? And you kind of look down your nose and say, oh, they've got 5 million in revenue. This is a little 30, 40 employee company. They have no clue what it takes to build a 30 employee company. The the ability to build a 30, 40 employee company is a very, very, very tiny percentage of the pie. Even... If you look at the statistics, only 4% of businesses in the United States ever crest a million in sales. Yeah. A million in sales is probably six, seven, eight employees. Yeah. Right? So you get to 30, 40 employees, you're probably in the like the 1% club, right? Yeah. And 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 you know how to negotiate a lease, you know how to hire, you know how to fire, you know how to run a marketing plan, you know how to do it, operate. I mean, you have to know every yeah. aspect of a business. 100%. And and I just think. I think people looking at the from the outside looking in have no clue, have no clue. And so equally, a 24-year-old with an MBA is like, like literally has no clue what it takes to run a company. And uh, I think it are woefully underprepared for. Yeah. And I agree with you. I, I mean, I, I, I think there, there's some, there's some outliers, but I, 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 yeah, I just, I think the entrepreneurship or groups out there, one of the best things that have come out of our classes is that it helped you figure out that you aren't an entrepreneur. This is, you know, some of the things that, that we teach and, and it's like, you're not wired for this. If you think this is bad, just wait till you're risking your own money. Yeah. You know, I, just, I just did an interview. I apologize for cutting off it, but I, but I, just, I like, I just literally did an interview with a guy who built a little company and he, we wanted to go after uh, fraud in the government and 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 people trying to to uh, take advantage of Medicare and, and unemployment. And he built a little algorithm, a little software package that allowed him to kind of hook up to different databases and figure out who was trying to cheat the system. Right? Really? He went for two years without making a sale. Obviously, government organizations are sure. slow to slow to yeah. move. Two years. Invested seven hundred thousand dollars of his own money. Before he made a single sale. 
I'm no, that there's your guy. Like that's, that's entrepreneurship, right? Yep. It's, 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 yeah, it's, a tough you know point. what? And, and that's, and, but that's the guy that's sitting there, you know, and he's the value builder client that now he, because he will start off and, and he'll remember that 700 grand and he'll remember that risk. And he's going to figure out somebody needs to pay me for, for the risk that I took. 100%. Well, let's go, let's go talk about whether or not that's even possible. So, yeah, that, <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, I don't think anybody's, you know, I, I, I pre in the introduction, you know, I don't, I, and I mean this and I'm not just stroking you cause you're on my podcast, but you know, I do believe that you have opened the conversation, the value conversation for so many businesses that I do put you in, in a different category as far as being a, a business value pioneer. And, and I, you're at what 70,000 people have gone. These are, these are businesses that have gone through the value builder questionnaire, right? Yep. More than 70,000 now. You know, I was telling somebody today that behind every one of those questionnaires, there's a family, there's employees, there is, there are, there is so much more that goes behind just simply going through this process. There's so much more at risk and there's so, so, so don't be flippant about, about what we're doing here because it, it means so much more than what you believe. And so that's what I was, when I was talking about 70,000 data points or 70,000 businesses, you know, you look at who else has that data? No one. I, to, do, you, do you know anybody that has this many businesses that have filled out whatever, 62 questions about their business? I don't know. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think so. So. Uh, but that that's where I'm heading is, all right, so let's talk about your crystal ball. I, you know, has to me, the value builder system, if you do it correctly, I think it makes businesses more saleable. So my question to you is like, when you look at value builder EOS, all these online, Hey, we can help you sell your business courses. You know, you would think more businesses would be, Farm, you know, that the, the velocity and the deal flow would be higher. And I'm not certain that it's there yet. I still think that there's a stubbornness to business owners. And, and I guess that's where I, I wanted you to kind of comment on, you know, where do you see the crystal ball here? Yeah, I mean, I would, first of all, I would agree with you. Business owners are, are can be very stubborn and jaded, maybe is another word that I jaded. would use. That's good. In, in part because, as I said earlier, they're the ones who, who have invested the 700 grand and they're the ones who put in the blood, sweat and tears and and are very skeptical of charlatans and people that, that, that are trying to take advantage of them. So there's, there's a high degree of skepticism uh, right. out there. So I, I think uh, that's a real thing. I think there's also a hesitancy to want to give up their their baby. They're, there's, they've got a lot of identity built into this. And I think entrepreneurs are also, by their nature, optimistic. If you were a pessimist, you wouldn't start a business. You, you would go work at the government or Procter & Gamble or some large company where you could hide in the bowels of that business. Instead, you start a business. Yeah. And by definition, you think tomorrow is going to be better today. You are optimistic that your ability to have agency over your life, to control your destiny, it's in the gene pool. Yeah. And as a result, if you think about that and you think tomorrow is going to be better than today, why would you sell today? Because tomorrow is going to be better, Ed. I, I'm going to sell that new product. I'm going to get the next location yeah. set up. And, oh, I know there might be another pandemic, but you know, we'll, we'll be fine. And I don't think that's going to like, they're, they're oh wired yeah. to be optimistic. And so uh, when just like nobody thinks they're going to die or nobody wants to have that conversation, right. um, <laughs> you know, I think entrepreneurs are hesitant to have the conversation because they're optimistic by nature. So I don't know the answer to your question. Uh, yeah. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I mean, I can share with you a little bit about what the data tells me, but, uh, but I think there's some kind of qualitative things going on as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do, 
Yeah, I I'm I've known you a long time and I did not know. I I I I I've never heard you talk the optimism conversation mm. like you just did. And but it makes total sense of you know, that's it's going to be better. And then the problem is when it stops becoming better, then it then then it moves into a into a situation where um and I just wrote an article. I just posted on LinkedIn called "The Five Stages of Grief in M and A," and where we start talking about just that—that that, you know, you move into a, a a posture of denial, you know, and then you move into anger and bargaining, and 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 so on and so forth. And so, I it's interesting when when you talk to these sellers that they stop if. That may be the tell. If you stop being optimistic about what tomorrow brings, you know, maybe that's just, this this is your this is your signal amongst all the noise, it's time, you know? Yeah. And and it, and it can be hard to 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 lead a horse to water in, in a sense because what we know and I'm sure you've seen this in your own work is that um business owners tend to think about the value of their company when they're reacting to one of two things. The first is that they are approached about an acquisition. They're approached by a buyer, private equity group. Yeah. Increasingly, you know, an individual investor knocks on the door and says, have you ever thought about selling? And that's what triggers the thought of, hmm, I wonder what it's worth. The second, sadly, is, an, is a health event, right? Where they right. have some sort of, you know, heart attack or they, you know, someone they love ends up in a hospital and they think, well, life is short. I need to, I need to get on my front foot here. And, and those are two... What I what I tend to talk about is is in both of those scenarios, you're on your back foot. You're reacting to something that's coming at you. And mm-hmm. anyone knows anything about uh, negotiation theory or you know business strategy, you want to be on your front foot. You want to be controlling the sure. dialogue, not being you know talked at or dictated to. So it's a it's it's you know it's a it's a challenge. But what we hope to do is intercept business owners when they have been. Uh, approached and yeah. and we can quickly give them a, a thumbnail you know value and some ways to improve the value over time. Yeah. So when we talk about, you know, everybody's talking about at least in the United States the silver tsunami. I mm-hmm. I, I haven't I, I've seen some waves. I haven't seen I, I shouldn't even say waves. I've seen some wakes. Um, you know, there's not a there's not ripples. There's no yeah. There is no yeah. Just ripples. It's not a tsunami and and. And rightfully so, I shouldn't say rightfully so, but I, I do think that, you know, if, if you're, if you're, you want to hold, you want to hold the business and get carried out of it, man, rock on. I mean, that, that's up to you. But, but in, I guess what, what I'm asking is I, I wanted to know, you know, do you guys track, you know, kind of the deal flow and velocity of, of those, those groups that are coming through your, through the system? And then exiting. Do you guys you guys track any of that? Yeah, we look at the proportion of our users who have received an offer in the last twelve months. Uh, it's up a little bit, but it hasn't hasn't moved tremendously in the last couple of years. So it's again, it's it's up single digit percentage points, but not you know as some people thought it would double, triple. I think one of the things that we have to remember is obviously the pandemic was disruptive for a lot of businesses, yeah. and so you know. Most people kind of got back to work in in earnest in 22. So now they're really only getting their first full year P&L that's not been dragged down by the the pandemic. And so I think there is some pent up demand to sell among owners who want to get one or two more years of decent uh, numbers under their belt before they go to market. I think I've heard that. I, I do genuinely believe that to be true. Interest rates, of course... Uh, we haven't talked about it yet, Ed, but of course, they obviously impact a lot of these deals because um, borrowers, buyers of companies, in particular individual investors, but also private equity groups and even some strategics have to borrow the money. And that money has gotten twice as expensive as it was two years ago. And so that uh, has somewhat offset what I think would have been a natural influx of sellers is the buyers are having to get debt yeah. and the debt needs to be repaid and it's expensive. Yeah, well, and and again, the, you're right. I mean, the borrowing power of the, of the buyers is limited, and that and you have you have the you have the value, you know, 
here's the value, but here's the the maximum borrowing power of the buyer. And you've got a delta between the two of them. So who's the, who's going to blink? I, I don't see any mezzanine financing sources that are coming to, to a bunch of rescue and, and, you know, because the money would be too expensive. I'll tell you one of the things that we, we have seen is here in the United States with this idle loan, the, the disaster loans. I mean, that's 3% money that's assumable. That's a third, that's 30 year money at three and a half or three and three quarters percent. Yeah. Where you can, you can assume that and that, that lowers your total cost of capital. So I don't know. There, there's, there's some, there's some, <laughs> there's some hope for, for, for some of those uh, sellers that have, you know, the availability of assumable debt, but generally speaking, you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a tough one to, to get past, um, yeah, you know, just the cost of capital, you know? Sure. Um, so if you had a do over, like you got the value builder system and, and so 70,000 people have gone through, I mean, the thing is clearly grown, you know, over the, over the years, if you had to do a do-over, what 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 would it what would you have done differently? Mm. I mean, there's probably there's probably a few things. Uh, one that comes to mind, I, I don't know why, but the I think we would have given more thought to the names of the drivers. So <laughs> there are eight drivers in the value builder questionnaire. And and some of them are a bit goofy. So one name we refer to as the Switzerland structure. It, it's inspired by the country of Switzerland, which, as you know, is like obsessed with independence. And so it measures, Switzerland structure measures a company's independence of any one okay. customer, employer, supplier. Um, but it's one which is very polarizing for a lot of our users. They're like, you know, why do we call it Switzerland structure? That's not the same as customer concentration. So there's some, we have a lot of literal uh, users. And when I say users, I mean business owners <laughs> as well as advisors. And, you know, there isn't a tremendous amount of creativity. And so that sort of thing. Another one is like we have, we call uh, one uh, the valuation teeter totter, which right. is uh, about cash flow in a business. In in the UK, teeter totters are not teeter totters; they're called seesaws. And so it's like again, I'm I'm giving you a, a fairly superficial answer to your question. No, that's it's, a good one. It's, I, it's, you know, like once you have seventy thousand users and you've got all that historical data, the last thing you want to go do is change anything, sure, right? because no, it's like it. there's great benchmarks there, right? And so yeah, that, that's uh, anyway. It's, it's no, it's funny. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I did because. I used it today and we, we had that conversation. So, oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. It's like, why the valuation teeter totter? And, and, but once you explain it, I mean, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's, it's a good analogy. It's yeah. just, it's just teeter totter. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, yeah. Yeah. you know, you, you know, adults often don't use teeter totter with other adults very often. It's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I might change that. <laughs> no, you can't change that. Um, no, I said if I had a do over, oh, if you had like to, to do it all over again, I might have changed that. I get it. So but shit still. <laughs> since you, since we're talking about the value, the value drivers, what? Yeah. So there's eight of them. You know, I outside of hub and spoke, and hub and spoke is is you know the 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 value or the importance is centered around the owner. Which of the drivers would be most important? Recurring revenue is probably where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. Yeah, you're right. Recurring yeah. revenue uh, is is revenue, obviously that that is is virtually guaranteed to come in. It's, it's what people buy on a service contract or a subscription. Yeah. It's often confused with reoccurring revenue. Interestingly, reoccurring revenue is is revenue that comes back, but without any kind of predictable yeah. cadence. Yeah. So like a rash that might come back every, every once in a while, but you never know what's going to come back. Reoccurring revenue is customers who repurchase from you, but there's no cadence to it. Okay. Whereas recurring revenue is predictable. And sure. the reason it's so valuable, obviously, is because when an acquirer buys your business, they realize you're going to be on the golf course and on the beach. And they need to know how your business is going to continue without you. Yeah. And so recurring revenue can give them a sense of confidence that it will continue. Uh, it also allows them to borrow more money 
in some cases, uh, because the business is more stable, more predictable. Um, and it's not necessarily just the domain of software companies. So, you know, I just did a webinar actually a couple of days ago about this topic, but there's lots of examples. Um, you know, there's a, there's a flower company that, that sells, you know, flowers uh, on subscription to hotels that want fancy sort of uh, reception tables. So there's, there's sort of all kinds of different industries that have found a way to create some recurring revenue, which, uh, uh, which, which really just juices the value of their business tremendously. You know what? I, I knew I, I, since you wrote the, the book automatic customer, I, for the life of me, I, I don't know why I didn't add both of them. Like you can't say hub and spoke and you can't say recurring revenue. So which, which, which <laughs> what's number three? <laughs> yeah. Number three, you know, I was going to, you know, it's sort of a toss up between recurring revenue and number three is monopoly control. Monopoly control gets its name as goofy as it may seem by from Warren Buffett. So Warren Buffett is famous as you know, for investing in companies with a deep and wide competitive moat. That's his one of his main criteria for investing. And, and why does he do that? Well, he does that because when you've got a moat, uh, you've got some pricing authority, you've got a competitive advantage that's not easily replicated. And so that gives you pricing authority. With pricing authority, that gives you more margin, more margin allows you to invest in sales and marketing. And it creates this sort of domino effect that builds on itself. And so monopoly control is the attribute we refer to as Really, do you have something that is truly unique, something something that makes you different? And one of the biggest mistakes we see is people tend to bury what is really unique about their business in a sea of other offerings. And it's natural, right? Is you 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 start a business with a specific vision, you create a great product. And then you want to build the business. And the fastest way to build the business is to cross-sell your existing customers on other product. Mm -hmm. But what you don't realize is, is with every product you cross-sell, you're diluting, provided it's not something you're uniquely advantaged to, to do, you're mm -hmm. diluting your kind of core jewel in the crown. Mm -hmm. And given the choice, and you've seen this, Ed, I'm sure most acquirers will apply the lowest multiple among the group. So they'll look yeah. at 10 different business lines or 10 different products and they'll say, okay, which one is the, is the worst multiple? Yeah. And we'll apply that to the entire group. And, and, and we do this with, with cable channels, right? When we buy television, um, we only pay a very small amount per channel because we don't want half the channels that we have to buy, right? right. Yeah. Whereas on a per channel basis, we pay much more for ESPN or Disney or Netflix because per channel, we're willing to pay a much higher price for something that's pure. And so, you know, the temptation, I think, is for folks to build their business by cross-selling. And, and I think that's a great way to build your revenue. But for mm. if your goal is building value, it's, it's probably better to focus on the one or two products that really make you unique in the marketplace uh, and, 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 yeah. and focus on those. You know, there's this old expression that revenue is vanity and value is sanity. Uh, I think the actual expression is revenue is vanity, profit is sanity. We'd switch it to yeah. value is sanity because focusing on what drives the value of your business, I think is what is what creates the long-term win for, for entrepreneurs. Yeah, I agree. So what, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this. So what's, what's on your bookshelf that would, that every business owner should read? I mean, so built to sell is, 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 I hear that often. So what else is on what else is on your bookshelf that you know every business owner probably should you know familiarize themselves with? Yeah, look, I'm a big E-Myth fan. I mean, E-Myth Michael Gerber was yeah. the one who sort of originated the, the entire kind of category that that mm -hmm. built self files finds itself in. So if you haven't uh read that, I think I think that's definitely worth the read. Um you know, it depends if your pension is for kind of very practical or uh, more inspirational. I tend to find myself reading more business biographies of late, okay. less tactical and more, I want to hear the story. So right now I'm reading the new Elon Musk book, the, the Walter too. Isaacson book. Yeah, are you? Yeah. But, but yeah, if I can get, like get, you see how big that book is? That, you know what that, I bought it digitally. Oh my gosh! I, I don't know if you have enough if you have enough uh, storage to have to get that book. Oh my gosh! Yeah, 
Yeah, it's Biggie. Walter Isaacson's quite an author. I, I love him. Yeah, he, I read the job, Steve Jobs book and, and, and I've read a few others. Um, I, I'm i a big fan of business biographies and, and I think uh, I, I just enjoy hearing the context and the history. I've become a bit of a history, historian of, of business. Nice. I, I'm liking the history more than I ever did. So I, I'm a little bit less on the practical and a, a bit more on the business biography of late. So I nice. definitely recommend the Elon Musk book. It is... Uh, it's big, but it's good. I'm only a third of the way through it, but it's uh, yeah, you're ahead it's of good me. read. Yeah, awesome. I love I love the uh, what's the uh, first page in where he he said, you know, I um, you know, I'm redesigning electric cars and I'm trying to send a man to the moon. Did you think I was going to be normal? <laughs> That's right. I, I don't know. I don't know where the quote was, but I yeah, I, I love that as page one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't remember who that was in reference to, but it was some conversation. Or yeah, speaking oh, at man. some university commencement or something like that. But yeah, no, I I recall that. And it's it's a great it's a great point. I mean, the guy. I mean, he's done more in his lifetime than Unbelievable. most people will ever do in ten lifetimes. But. Amen to that. Well, I I know we're bumping up on time, but what's come what's coming next for Built to Sell or Value Builder? Or yeah. Both? Any uh, books, any, you got to, yeah, you, you put your fourth one out here in a couple of years back with the art of selling. So what, what, uh, what's, what's next on, on the John Morello docket? Oh man. You know, like personally, I, I might actually write a fiction book. I, oh, I, nice. I, uh, I'm kind of curious a little bit about, about that. I think, I, I think I would love to do that and make it, I, I'm longing for the sheer creativity of it as opposed to having to make everything right. Cause when you write a business book it, it you know, you have to kind of do the research, make sure you got the right quote and you know, the, yeah. the right statistic and you quote, they're like, you're sourcing sure. the right. So I don't want to do any of that stuff anymore. I, but I, I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of keen on maybe writing another, uh, but, but a fiction book. So that, okay. that might be me personally. And, uh, and yeah, with Valuable, we got a ton of stuff coming up. We're, we're doing a refresh on the Valuable report. We're really leaning into assessments, uh, you know, the Valuable report, the pre-score report, and the freedom score, the sort of the trifecta or the three sort of legs of the stool. So we're really leaning into, uh, from a product development standpoint, sort of refreshing some of those products, which we're excited about. Well, it's, it, it, it having seen where it's starting, where it's going. It's, it, it, it is awesome. I, I will tell you that the research and, and a lot of the things that you do make the things that I do a lot easier. It really it's kind of you said, no. And, and, I'm, and like I said, I'm not struggling you cause you're my hundredth episode guy, but, but you know what I'm saying? I'll tell um, you. <laughs> <laughs> so last question I asked this on, I've asked it. Uh, now I'll have asked it a hundred times. So what's one piece of advice you would give the listeners that would have the most impact on their business? What would it be? Yeah, this is a good question. Um, you know, here, here's the thing. I think a lot of your listeners are probably parents. And mm-hmm. if we're honest with ourselves as parents, and I know Ed, you're a proud father, you, you know, maybe in our dreams we think about, oh, well, maybe they'll be the quarterback for Alabama, or maybe they'll go to Harvard, or maybe they'll do some amazing thing. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would love to think that our kids will grow up to be independent, happy people. And if we if we're able to do that, it doesn't really matter what they achieve in life. We'll right. we'll be we'll we'll, you know, job well done. We'll be able to pat ourselves on the back yes. on the rocking chair of life and and know that we've done a good job. I think that's the parent's sort of responsibility. And so what I would invite your listeners to do is, is apply the same lens to their business and say, instead of I'm the CEO of my business, and I'm going to grow it to another X million in revenue or X stores, I'm going to think of my role as the parent of my business. And the ultimate arbiter of my role as founder is do I create something that can live independently, happily in the universe without me? And, and if I started making decisions about my business, more like a parent makes a decision with their teenagers, knowing that, yeah, they're going to have to skin their knees a little bit to learn the lessons. And we've got to let the rope out occasionally yeah. and let them, but not too much until they're ready for it, et cetera. Like if we thought about our role as founders and CEOs 
as a parent as opposed to a CEO. I think I think we'd make better decisions. I think we'd build more wow. valuable companies. And uh, I'll just leave your listeners with that thought. Oh, the, what a great what a great analogy. And and I can't help. The question is, as as I heard, I mean, because I was that was really eloquent. And I mean, truly. I, and I'm. <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm sitting here going, "Am I talking to an author that owns a company? You know, like like a like you know d- an author that just happens to own a company, or is it a business owner that just happens to like to write? Because I mean that that was you know that's a you know I, when when you listen to the tape, you ought to steal that from yourself and <laughs> and, and put it in <laughs> some of your material because that's a great analogy. Oh, oh man, crazy. well you know, John, thank I. I you know, I, one of the hi- highlights of my career, and I and I I told you this before, was was serving on your board. I I I loved working with with your team and and that whole advisory board, and they were, it was awesome. And 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 I I miss being on the inside of what goes on, you know, because we'll it, have it, to have you back. We'll have <laughs> to do an alumni. Well, it board it, retreat. <laughs> right, but it it's been it's been a lot of fun to see what what you've done and the impact that you've made on business owners. And, and like I said, I, I don't, I don't, granted, we're only talking 70,000 and, and in the, in the, in the expanse of all businesses, but you've made a real dent in helping business owners far more than I think people either know or give credit to you for doing. So thanks so much for coming on and, and, and spending some time with me. You, you really made my day. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And I thank you for being uh, a great board member and, and uh, contributing to the art of selling your business with your sage wisdom. So I'm grateful for that as well. So thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure right. to be with you. Well, I'll have you on at 200. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, John. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value Podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.